Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Love Fruit podcast. And I recently interviewed Lee Nelson, who I'd met at the Woodstock Fruit Festival, and he recommended that I should interview his wife, Abby Nelson. So we, uh, we're going to talk to Abby today and looking forward to that. Abby is a licensed clinical social worker, I believe is the, the term you used. Um, Rob Egan works with people on a holistic level for um, certain issues. I'm sure she'll tell us more about that. Um, Abby, do you want to explain a little bit more about who you are and, and what you do? Yeah, yeah. I am, like you said, a social worker, and I've been a therapist now for the past 15 years, and I specialize in treating any kind of trauma, but over the years, I've become more specialized in specifically domestic violence and sexual assault. And so for anybody that knows anything about those particular traumas, a lot of the trauma um, happens actually to the body. And so what I've found throughout my career is that the more integrated and holistic modalities of healing that I could use with my clients, um, the, the more long lasting and, um, just fully integrated healing that they were able to have. And that includes diet and lifestyle. What do you mean by, I think your phrase was that it happens to the body. Yeah. I mean by that. Yeah. Okay. Well, sexual assault is a little bit easier to understand when it comes to that, because, you know, the, um, I mean, there's all types of sexual assault, but typically, you know, when we're thinking about sexual assault, we're thinking about um, non-consensual actions towards someone's body in a sexual way. Right. Right. And so the, the site of the trauma is actually on the body. And then, um, obviously we know it affects all parts of the person, but that's a real clear indicator of like the trauma is actually happening to the body. And then that's affecting the spirit and the mind and all of that. And then when we think about domestic violence, obviously sexual assault is under that umbrella of domestic violence. Um, sometimes it's also called intimate partner violence when there's violence among people that are in, you know, a partnered relationship. And oftentimes, whereas sexual assault sometimes might happen once, you know, um, or it could happen multiple times, particularly in domestic violence situations worth it's usually over an extended period of time. So this trauma is very repetitive, right? Because over the course of the relationship, these acts of violence, which could be physical, emotional, um, spiritual, I mean, they're economic, there's all kinds of type of abuse that can occur within an intimate partner violence relationship. And when you have this trauma that is occurring over time, and once again, it could be directly impacting the body, or we know that there is a strong correlation between like those who are in domestic violence and like physical health issues that they have. And so with that, and also the work of, uh, Russell, uh, Vanderkolk, have you heard of the body, the book, the body keeps the score. I've heard of that book. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of he, he was kind of, he's kind of the forefront runner and like really researching and showing that these types of traumas, um, are really, um, difficult on the body, the mind, and the spirit. And therefore, a lot of our traditional modalities that we use for healing, for example, when I was trained um, in school, we do a lot of modalities that focus on the mind, like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, these kind of things. And they're not bad, 
it's just they only lead a client to a certain point. And particularly if the trauma has affected the body, they're going to need more integrated uh, modalities to help them um, integrate this trauma. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, the word I like is integrate. Can you explain what you mean by integrate? Yeah. So again, we can talk about this on the mind, the body, and the spirit, right? Because um, when a trauma occurs, literally your brain cannot completely process the event in the moment, right? Because in that moment, um, a basic definition of trauma is anything that you do not have the emotional capacity to handle in that moment. So because of that... Stop, stop, stop. I just want to pause there. That was brilliant. So what's the definition again? So this... Can you just say yeah. that? I just love that. I am a fast talker, so you can stop. <laughs> I, have, I have to, re- you, people have to remind me all the time. To no, I just, I, just, I just thought what you said there was worth going over again, just repeating what, what how did you? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of definitions of trauma academically, but if you break it down, one of the, one of the ones that I like, especially when I'm teaching my students, is anything that your, your, your body and your brain don't have the capacity to cope with in that moment. And that's why sometimes a trauma for one person might, the same event might occur to me and occur to you. For you and your body and your mind, it might not register as a trauma. But for me, it might, depending on, you know, a lot of things, our internal, external resources, the support we have, where we are in that current moment. Um, and so that's an important thing to, to realize, too. And especially when I'm working with clients, you know, sometimes they might tell me, like, this thing happened to me and I don't even know why it's so overwhelming. And, you know, and I have yeah. to normalize, normalize for them, like a trauma is a trauma if it's a trauma to you. If, if someone yeah. else did that and because some people can have shame about that. Right. Yeah. So someone, for example, uh, when they're a child, a dog could run after them and they get a bit scared and mm-hmm. they forget about it. And other people, it leads to they scared, they're scared of dogs for life. Right. So like, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I guess the problem is is not necessarily that traumas occur or that people obviously people go through bad experiences and part of life is about there's pain and there's hurt and there's bad times and that's just part of life. But right. what we're really talking about is that for some reason, the person, the so what I'm imagining is this, there is some kind of inbuilt system within us to take these traumatic events and process them in some way. And then it leads to this, what I believe you're talking about, integrate. The, the, the experience, the emotion becomes in, integrated fully. What I think you're talking about and the people you're dealing with is people where that process has not completed and why is that happening? Why? I mean, you're saying, obviously, because it's going beyond the capacity, but why does it not complete over time? What is preventing it? And does the person avoid the completion, the integration process? How, how's, how does that all work? Yeah, well, one of the reasons why I chose to study social work, because there's a lot in the U.S., there's a lot of different paths to become a therapist. You can be a counselor, you can do the psychologist path. And I chose the social work path because um, in social work, and we don't just study the individual, we study the person in the environment. And we look at the system that surrounds the person. And that really comes wow. into play when you're thinking about healing, okay? Because if you have someone, let's take your dog example, okay? And you have someone who has, who grew up with a dog, 
who has super supportive parents, who had maybe had a scary experience with a dog, but then they had positive attachment with their caregivers and their caregivers were able to help them feel their emotion in the moment and deal with it safely. All of these things in that person's environment, their own personality, right? Like, do they like animals? Do they not? I mean, this is a very simple example, but I like that you pointed that out, right? Because we can use it as an analogy for a lot of different things. So it's, it's, I'll give you what we know from research. So when it comes to sexual assault and domestic violence, one thing that we know helps people have um, heal quicker or not end up in my office with the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. Because if you have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, basically that means that these symptoms of trauma have not integrated, right? Your brain has not been able to process this information in a way so that it's still activated when something other things happen. And therefore you're going to have the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So we know that those that tell someone, tell a loved one um, about, or even a stranger, they tell someone about what happened to them and someone is able to listen and not shame them. They're much less likely to get PTSD. So even something simple like that, well, that's not simple, right? But particularly with my area of interest, right? The domestic violence and sexual assault. So it depends on how people respond to them right after the trauma. We know that affects how well someone integrates, you know, what other, what coping skills they have going into this event. You know, a lot, um, I work with a professor right now and she studies sexual assault with um, college students in the U.S. And particularly why that's a vulnerable age is because for a lot of those students, they've lost their support system, right? They had all these friends in high school. They had all these, this family, whatever. Um, and then in the U.S., you know, you, a lot of people move away to go to school and then they're, they're alone. They haven't built this system yet. And then something happens that would affect them and even be more traumatic because they don't have these supports in place. So those are some examples. Does that help you? Does that make sense yeah. to what you're asking? Yeah, I think so. And something I was thinking about with sexual assault is if you're talking about the idea that part of it is stored or held in the body, you know, and in the sexual organs, I imagine, or those places. And what I'm what I've heard and seen occasionally is that, and maybe there is some credence to this, but there are then people who uh, are maybe practitioners that work that actually work with people and maybe they're touching those areas as part of what they do. And in some situations, it seems like that's almost can be uh, with the wrong people get involved, predatory. And there's, there's, I've seen places that have been shut. There was a place, Copanyang, yeah. Thailand, where I, I, I was staying for a while. And it was a world-renowned place of Tantra. Oh. It, but it got shut down because of potentially some bad things involved and yeah and that's unfortunate because there are a lot of legitimate practitioners who can do you know um there's different names for it right like somatic body work um uh body trauma release like there's a lot of uh you know there's yeah. people like sexual healers who do womb healing and you know a lot of them can do some really great things but yes i do think that there are people who you know, aren't trained well, or they, maybe they are trained well, but they're just not in it for the right reasons. And it can be, 
And that's so sad because then it's a re-traumatization, yeah. right? Yeah, very risky. I think um, I've, I've experienced a lot of different, uh, some work of not sexual related, but I, I had a partner for a while that was a, um, in fact, I've had a few partners that, that were quite skilled in, in different massage and different techniques of release, body release and things like that. And I had some amazing experiences, but it was weird to me because when these, it appears to me these emotions can be released and it's weird because it ha- it's like an emotional rush for a moment. It doesn't feel the same as when you actually experience an emotion. It's so disconnected in a way from, because it, it's not happening in the moment. It's just the release, or this is what I'm trying to get across. But it almost felt as, as well sometimes that, I don't know if it was like almost past life or, or something unconscious or something pre like birth related something that I don't even remember happening that I was having these releases from uh so I'm really basically what I'm saying is I'm really interested in this stuff and I really believe in it and I'm, I'm trying to figure out and learn more about what it actually is how the body actually works in that sense why are why are these things getting why are these emotions and so on getting stuck the energies and so on and and what are the best ways of trying to go about releasing that? And perhaps, and my question is, well, firstly, is there times where it's a good thing that it is not fully processed? Like that has to, that the person's not ready for it? Or? Yeah, well, here's the thing. Well, I'm, I'm going to answer that question. And then I'm also going to go back to your previous question about explaining a little bit more about what's happening in the brain, like why the brain is not integrating it. Cause I didn't fully answer that. I kind of got off on a, on a yeah. tangent, but your And I always tell my clients this because a lot of the techniques that I use, I'm trying to tap into the subconscious mind because when you do traditional talk therapy, where you're just like talking to someone, there can be benefits from that, but you're in your conscious mind when you're doing that, which means that you're, you're really using the frontal lobe. Okay. And the thing is, that's not where trauma happens. When trauma occurs, that's why memories are very fragmented. And this is what I'm talking about, about that integration thing, right? If you, they know, if you interview someone right after a traumatic event, it's not going to be accurate, right? Because can, they're, yeah, their brain is ask, fragmented. And can I just ask, just when you're talking about the, because I, I love this stuff, the frontal brain and all that. So is it the case that someone could actually, in their mind, they feel like they're over it. They, they've un- understood what's happened. It was a bad thing. They, they're, they get it, but they're still getting triggered. And is it a disconnection, yeah. therefore, between this part and the body and all that? Exactly. So the techniques that I do and that I research are experiential techniques that drop you into the subconscious mind because we know that that is where the trauma gets stuck. That's where it gets, um, and it can often all, all of this kind of stuff. And so, for example, I do eye movement desensitization reprocessing. I do psychotherapeutic yoga. I do psychodrama. I do family constellations. So again, I mean, we could, you know, I'm not going to go into what each one of these are, but I'm putting them under the umbrella of experiential techniques 
that take you from your frontal lobe into your subconscious mind to help the body. Cause we know that's where the body holds the trauma. And so if we're going to process it, we've got to process it in that way. And I'll, and, and then back to your example, your question about, is this sometimes, yes, your body and your mind will block and store things that you do not have the capacity yet to cope with. Oh, wow. So that's why a lot of times, well, not a lot, but I have had this happen a handful of times and I'm not the only therapist. A lot of other therapists have had this happen too, where we have, um, for me, it's happened with women, which I do want to point out, you know, traditionally when we talk about gender violence and stuff, we do talk about like men abusing women, which we know that's not the only thing that's happening, right? We know that it can happen the other way and in, in non-binary relationships and all of this. So I want to point that out, but my particular research is of women. So, um, most of my work has been with, with females. Sure, sure, um, sure. And so I'll be doing something with them. So like they'll come in for, um, they'll be, re- I used to work at a clinic. And so I would get my referrals from doctors. Right. So I would get a lot of people with chronic pain or like they would be referred to me because, okay, this woman has this, she just has chronic stomach issues and, um, we've given her all the meds, we've done all the things and like, nope, we can't figure it out. So like, we'll just send her to you, you know? And so they send her to me and we start talking and this and that or whatever. And then we go into some of our experiential techniques and she'll have a flashback of being abused and she will never have known that. Like literally will have had no memory up until this point that that had happened to her. And then she, you know, usually the person will like go and talk to their family and be like, what was happening with during this time? Is this real? You know, it can be very, but the good news is, is that at that point, I always tell them, even though that can be challenging, your brain would not unblock that unless you have now the capacity and the support to deal with that. And, you know, the case is they've, it's good news for me in the sense that like they're coming to me, I'm able to provide a safe space for them. I'm able to make sure they're connected. They're not just out there doing this on their own. And that's why sometimes some of these like, um, which I'm totally not against plant medicine. Like I've used it, you know, all of that, but, but sometimes I get concerned when people go do those things and they don't have trained professionals with them. Right. Um, or people who understand trauma, because the thing is, if, if your body and your mind unlock something like that, and you don't have people who understand that and can help, you know, what your next steps would be, that can be super scary. And that can be traumatizing. Does that make sense? Yeah. I've been doing this. Isn't there another side to this where some people suggest that, that people went to some kind of a counseling and they've had a false memory somehow planted isn't there an argument about that the kind of um whether it's through hypnosis or whatever that somehow the therapist has suggested to them that they've had an experience or maybe they imagine an experience i'm not sure do you want to comment on that i feel like i've heard about that yeah i mean i do think there are people people, like you said, just like people in the like Tantra world have used it inappropriately. Right. I know that there are people in the, who, like you said, who might be trained in hypnotherapy or whatever, which can be in a great modality, right. If used appropriately. Um, but in my case, like I can just only speak for myself, right. Because I don't, I don't know how other people are doing it, but I just, it doesn't really, if their brain brings up that image. Okay whether it's real or not, they get to decide what it means to them. Okay. 
So, and that's what I always, and that's what I explained to them too. Like it, the thing is, it's not that it, it's not that it doesn't matter if it happened, but in that moment, if their brain is bringing it up, it's for some reason, even if say it's not real. Okay. Well then they must've, must've thought about it because maybe they were exposed to a lot of traumatic TV or who knows for some reason, you know, cause I know for sure I'm not implanting images into these people's minds. Right. So if the work I'm doing with them brings this up, I mean, all the cases that I've had this happen, it's been super clear that it, it did happen. Right. Like they go talk right, to them, okay. they go talk to the family members and they're like, Oh my gosh, yes, you had an uncle. That's exactly what he looked like. And it's been pretty obvious, you know, cause I've talked, cause I've talked to my clients, like you don't, it's up to them what they want to do with this right information. Sure. Right. And most sure. of them, because it, a lot, for a lot of people, it gives a lot of freedom because they're like, oh my gosh, no wonder my stomach's been hurting. You know, literally my body, like didn't, couldn't, I didn't even have conscious memory to be able to move this through. And now that I do, well, let's work with it. And I, I'm more interested in let's work with it and see if the symptoms alleviate, right? And regardless of whether it's real or not, they've still had a healing, right? Because this memory has come up. So, um, so, and I don't, it, to me, I'm going to believe what the client gives me and I'm going to encourage them to believe what they want to believe. Um, and then we're going to work with that. Sure. Sure. What, what is it that's actually stored or blocked or whatever, you know, like what is, if, if, if there's a feeling like this emotion moves or is processed and that that's in the body, what is that in a physical sense? Is there any sense of that being chemical? Is it electrical charge? Is it something that you feel in the body, but it's actually happening in the brain? What, what do you think it is? I mean, there's there, like, research is still coming together with okay. all of this stuff because we've just, I mean, really, it's just been in the last, you know, five years, it's been a big deal, but it started the past 10 years where we can literally like hook people up you know, like, like doing brain scans and doing body scans, like while we're doing certain modalities. And so that has given us a lot of information. For example, what I just told you about understanding that trauma is stored in the, in, in the amygdala and in the, like, uh, more of the, what we would call the reptilian brain, right? They know that because of doing scans and stuff while they're doing certain things. So, so there's let, there's more, research on the neuro, the neurobiology than there is on the body. And I think that, but what you said is true. We do know that some of it is somatic. So when I say somatic, what that means is there's no, so for example, that lady that came to me with the stomach issues, there was no medical reason that they could find that she was having that pain. So it was emotions and energy. Um, and so, and a lot of that is hard to study right? How do you, yeah. how do you study? And especially, you know, when we get into science and how you do studies and all of that, it's, and, um, yeah. and whether it's we even have, whether we even have the instruments yet to sort of measure that stuff. Yeah. It's, it, we're in our infancy of understanding that. And that's why some of the modalities that I'm trained in, um, like I started having to go out of the box, right? So like, for example, family constellations is one that I'm trained in that really works a lot on um, looking at your family lineage and like looking at energies that might be stuck from your past family history and all of that. 
And like when I did that training, like my licensure won't even offer um, CEUs for that training. So yeah. even some of these modalities are not even quite yet accepted, but we, you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. uh, especially in the modern Western world, like you've got to have the research behind it and whatever before insurance will pay for it. And that, that leads me to why I'm currently getting my PhD. And that's because I worked in community clinics for a long time. And in the U.S., that's highly connected with like the insurance system that we have here. And yeah. a lot of the insurance companies, they will only um, pay for like by the book cognitive modalities. Like they'll be like, I'll pay for eight sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy and that's it. So then when I would go to my supervisor and I'd be like, Hey, I'm going to do a nutrition and yoga group for female survivors. They'd be like, well, how are you going to, who's, how are you going to bill it? Who's going to pay for it? Like we can't yeah. bill insurance for that. And so I just got really tired of that because I felt like my hands kept being tied. And so I wanted to come back to get my PhD to really help build this knowledge base of these integrated uh, and holistic um, modalities yeah. so that they would be more legitimate and we can kind of get them out more to the masses. Is there a, is there a kind of framework for how the process of say from the trauma happening to the eventually the integration occurring? You know, so I've heard things, for example, where talk, people talk about going through grief, which may be a similar thing. And, they, and there's the five stages of grief, which I don't know if it's true or not, but people talk about denial, anger, bargaining, depression. The cyclical process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there a process like that similar with, with trauma release or integration of traumas? Yeah, yes, but it, there's just a lot of factors because like this goes back to what I was talking about before. Like, was it a one-time trauma? Was it recurrent trauma? Um, how, you know, do, how it's affect, how has it affected their brain? Because a lot of times you might have the trauma, but then you also had co-occurring disorders, right? So you also have someone who's dealing with trauma and they, but they already had depression. They already had anxiety. They already had addiction issues. And so that's going to affect how they're going to go through this process. But what we know, like neurobiologically, I mean, it's, so I can't give you like a time range, like on average, if you use these modalities, it's going to go like this, but, um, and, and I, and I, and I've the way in all the trainings that I've ever taken, when people have talked about trauma and trauma healing, the best framework that they describe is it's like an onion and you're like peeling away like a layer, yeah. but then once you he heal that layer and the body feels safe, there's likely another layer that's going to come up. Um, because humans, I mean, we're just so complex and we're amazing and we're resilient, but we have the capacity to hold so much pain. And in our society where we don't really have systems set up to accept people expressing pain, um, by the time you have an adult who gets to a therapist office you know, that onion is quite thick, right? Yeah, yeah. Something I've experienced sometimes, Abby, I don't know if this is a bit personal, but I, I, I'm interested in this topic and I wonder if it's relevant, is that some people are, I've had some situations in the past and, and I remember a relationship in the past and sometimes I've seen it in other situations where it feels like the person is sort of, 
finds it very hard or is very struggling with the concept of intimacy, mm -hmm. building intimacy with another person. And uh, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. And I don't know, is, can, can that be to do with trauma as well? Can that be to do with the fears that come up there? And, and I've heard about the idea of people sort of building a wall up to intimacy because, yeah, because of situations. It's a protection mechanism, right? Um, because likely that person has been hurt um, in some way. And so they've learned to like build that wall. And, and, and it can be tricky because sometimes like you, like we've been talking about, a lot of this might be held in their subconscious. So you might talk to them and be like, you know, I want to build this relationship, this beautiful relationship with you. Like I'm willing to support you and this and that. And in that moment, they might be like, okay, yes. Like I get that. Like, I love you. Let's work on this. But then something happens and they shut down. Right. Or they're, they, they just don't have the capacity to like meet you wherever, whatever level you're at, right? If you're ready to go deeper in the relationship and right, yes, right. And, and yes. And most of the time that's related to particularly attachment trauma, which a lot of people, um, a lot of people have attachment trauma, right? Because we're humans and in order to survive, we have to attach, right? From an early age, if we don't attach to someone, we'll die, right? And so, but, but a lot of times who we originally attached to are in, is a human that is unhealthy, right? Or maybe just doesn't have the ability to know how to securely attach with us. And then that has ramifications moving forward. Right, right. I've heard of like attachment styles and things like that. Yeah. In terms of sexual abuse and a few other things, um, Maybe, maybe, maybe sexual abuse isn't the best example to go into here, but what something I've, I don't know if this is a real thing, but the idea of someone that has a traumatic experience or, yeah, has, has something like a traumatic experience, and then their behavior in life leads them to relive the trauma in some way. I guess in, it might make sense, I guess, in certain, certain sexual situations. And I don't really want to talk, I don't want to like trigger anyone who's listening. Well, is that because I mean, I've heard about the idea of sexual abuse can lead to people becoming, you know, hypersexual later on in life or, um, you, you know, and, and I don't know if that's a real living of trauma over and over or maybe that's not. But what what what's the perspective on that from your side of things? Yeah. And we see this also with domestic violence, like um, right. people who keep picking the yeah. same partner. OK. And, and I'll give you a really good example of this when I, and I think this because of our mirror neurons and, and our attachment styles, uh, I think it starts at a young age. So for example, when the first clinic that I worked at, when I got out of grad school, I was seeing, um, a lot of, cause I speak Spanish and I worked in Texas. So Texas is on the border with Mexico. So I was seeing a lot of immigrant, um, Spanish speaking women from Mexico who were all in abusive marriages um, and they had kids. And so what I started noticing over time is that um, these teenage girls, which, you know, were their daughters in these relationships were just really, really struggling um, with 
like life, right? And so I started a group for them, like just a psychoeducational group, just talking about like coping and like healthy lifestyle and all of this. And and we we would have these conversations where they would be like, I'm never gonna be with anyone that's like my dad. He does this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I can't stand the way he treats my mom. But then we would ask them like, tell me about your boyfriend right now. And then their boyfriend, obviously they would explain it a little bit differently, right? But once they started talking about it and, you know, whatever, it would be like, oh my gosh, like they're with someone that's doing the same patterns that they're saying. So logically, here we go back to the subconscious, right? Logically, they can look at what their dad is doing to their mom and they're like, I don't want that to happen to me. But because they've grown up in that environment and it's so ingrained, like literally it's in their cells, right? They've been in this, this goes back to that body memory and all of this, um, they're subconsciously picking these men, teenagers, they're not even men yet, who are treating them the same way. So I think that's a really good example. And it's hard to break that cycle. It, I mean, obviously it can be done. You don't always have to be a victim, but once you've uh, been kind of in that like victimhood, especially when it comes to abuse, um, that it is common that that is, can be repetitive if you're not getting treatment to really understand, you know, why am I continuing to uh, reflect this person and draw in this type of person. And that's one of the reasons why I have never, like, I'm really into, especially with domestic violence, I'm really into like long-term healing of survivors because a lot of the money, particularly in the U.S., is given to shelters, which is awesome, but that's like acute care, right? That's like, get them out and get them like on their feet, maybe, and then good luck, right? But what we know is if we're not helping them really learn about these patterns, learn about literally their body and their brain and all these things I just told you, then um, it's likely going to be repeated. Yeah, so I've, I've got this. So my idea of what it would mean for this, for a person to have an experience like that and then to have integrated that experience or have fully processed it would be that the experience is still there in their memory and they're obviously aware of it but it no longer is affecting their behavior now and if they think about it it no longer is triggering and 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 exactly I suppose but I don't know if a person can ever fully get over it but um yeah, no, like one of the one of the measures that I use when I'm doing EMDR therapy, which is the eye movement desensitization reprocessing that I was telling you about, we literally check in at the beginning of how activating is this memory to you on a scale from one to one to seven. And then after we do the technique, again yeah. I ask, how activating is this? And that number should go down. And what that tells me is exactly what you're saying. We're integrating it. Does that make sense? Yes. Because if it's if if we've done this modality and at the end they have the memory and it's still the same activation, then we haven't quite yet gotten through all those whatever the I mean I'm not you know it's very complicated right all the stuff that's going on but all the different things that are happening to, to that it is to that word again the integration of it. Yeah, and because the idea is not to like you're not ever going to forget these things, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
what part what part does forgiveness play in this in this kind of process event i mean it depends on like what the issue is right but i i think it can it can only be helpful <laughs> with it at the very at the, i mean to me from what i just from working with clients it seems like the most important person that they have to forgive in order to heal is themselves okay. right for so many different reasons and then once they can do that then of course it's much uh kind of the other it seems to be much easier for them to forgive others um than it is for to themselves yeah and there's obviously that yeah um I've seen the situation where the person almost feels like they should never have brought it up. They've caused problems by talking to people about it. They've maybe brought it up to their family. They should have never done that. It's, and, and there's that sense of it sort of being their fault yeah, in some way. Because there can be a lot of shame that comes along with trauma, you know, and just questioning what could have been different and those kind of things. I'm just going to move to my standing desk here, my makeshift standing desk. <laughs> something I would like to ask, I mean, it's something that I've seen is, for example, I got a friend who went through uh, physical abuse when he was, when he was younger and he, his dad remarried and he would be assaulted essentially by his step brothers and his stepmother. And something he would say to me, even to this day, when he would talk about it, he would say, why did they do that to me? Why did that happen to me? And my sense of that was that he was looking for an answer that wouldn't have even made any difference if he, if he got the answer. And that the problem is him still asking that question as if there is an answer that will help to, for him to understand that situation more. And is there a part of this where the person has to kind of give up on trying to understand it and realize that it, it's it's something that happened those people had their own problems it's probably nothing to do with them or could could be could have been nothing to do with them at all but they're looking for the answer of why did that happen as if part of the process of this integration is trying to figure out why it happened so it doesn't happen again but in reality there isn't really a good answer to why it happened yeah i mean the brain is trying to protect right? The brain is trying to protect as if, if you could figure out why somehow that could protect you. Um, but yeah, what I work, what I have to work with most clients. And I, I, I mean, I say exactly what you just said is this understanding that, um, it really didn't have anything to do with them. And I know that, and that can be very hard to understand, but like, for example, I have a lot of, I work with a lot of females who have been abused, um, by their mothers. Right. Oh, and wow, a lot really? of and a lot of them are mothers themselves. And so they, they're like, how could a mother yes. treat me like this? Because they now understand I have my own kids. I would never do that. But I use that to explain to them exactly your that's that shows you like it's not natural for a mother to treat their child like this. Right. So that shows us that your mom had so many of her own personal issues, so many that she couldn't even act like her true self. Right. And so she took that out on you. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't your fault, you know, I mean, cause I mean, if you've, if you've taken any kind of training on 
particularly domestic violence and sexual assault, one of the main things that survivors need to hear is it's not your fault. Um, um, and so that's just- Is there any sense, is there any sense, and I, this is gonna sound a bit controversial, is there any sense of a person being stuck in a place of, of remaining in that victim place? Because there's a safety in the sense of when I project myself as the victim, I am protected by others. Is there anything, any, I don't know, is there any kind of truth in that? Yeah, and, and even saying it's not, their, it's not their fault what others are doing to them, but they, it, having said that, they still get to pick what they take responsibility of. Does that make sense? So like, example, yeah. a lady that's staying in a relationship with a, a man who's abusing her. It's not her fault, but it is her choice whether she's going now that she knows, now that she understands. I mean, those that come into my office at the beginning, sometimes they don't even understand they're in an abusive relationship, right? But once they understand that they are, well, then that can be so scary because then they have to take responsibility, right? And they have to decide, okay, now that I know this, you know, what are my options? What can I take responsibility for? And then, then that goes into a whole discussion of privilege because those that have resources, those that have education have the ability, you know, to have jobs and work on their own and take care of the kids on their own. Like they have a lot more freedom to choose to leave. When I worked with the lady, the immigrant women who spoke Spanish and a lot of them didn't even have documents, they had a lot less choice when it came to that, right? Yeah. Um, of leaving these relationships. Um, but um, I think even if you are in, if you're a victim in some way, there is always a choice and, and a responsibility you can take if you want that. And, and that's one of the hardest things about being a therapist, you know, because again, from the social work perspective, I never believe that I know what is right for my client. I always believe that my client knows what is right for them. But that can be very challenging when from the outside, you're seeing them continue to stay in a relationship that is hurting them. Does that, does that make sense? Think, yeah, yeah. So why is it that so many people that have experienced various kind of traumas end up taking drugs? Well, because they don't have the capacity to cope. You know, I mean, we as humans, we want to like avoid pain. And if you right. don't have, if you don't have a toolbox, if you don't have the capacity to be with pain, and we live in a culture that tells us that pain is not normal, which it is, it's part of the human experience, but we yeah. don't live in a culture that tells us that and really teaches us from a young age that it's okay to have a rainbow of emotions, um, then, you know, you, you just, you want to get away from it and, and drugs can help with that or your phone or whatever, you know, there's so many different addictions now. <laughs> Um, yeah, this, this, this. Uh, I guess my sense is that at some point in the at, at points in the past, people wouldn't have had access to things like that, and they would have been almost forced into a situation of. Because I, I really feel like, and I, it kind of scares me when I think about it. So, for example, um, on a very small level, you could uh, a very small level of pain or trauma, not really a trauma, but you could. Um, be attracted to someone or like them or whatever or go on a date and then they don't want to take that any further and you could feel hurt by that right and 
it, and, and maybe it could be worse than that. Maybe it could be a very close relationship that breaks down and a person experiences, you know, extreme um, grief as a, as, a, as a part of that. And one person could just choose to take some time to rest, to sit with the emotions they're going through, the difficult emotions, to sort of accept the situation, to feel through those emotions, to allow all that to, that processing to happen. And it would, um, you know, clear and, and they could get back to their, get back to a feeling of centeredness and sort of move on from there. And another person might start going, taking drugs, drinking, um, casual sex, who, who knows, triggering all this bad stuff, end up in a bad lifestyle could from one situation could lead to a whole range of bad habits that really affect their life badly simply because the pain of that emotion in that situation was was too much for them or they perceived it as being too much for them to deal with in that moment um and it scares me that so, that just the ability that well what I'm trying to say is that that that, that can happen with a person simply because they just didn't take some time and or they didn't weren't able to that it can affect their life so badly in such a profound way that these that these negative emotional experiences which i imagine are there to sort of protect us and guide us and help us i like to try and see all of our emotions as even shame and guilt as being there for a reason and and really a protective system for us and that we have to learn to be prepared for the pains of these and, and to and to go through. And so when I think about integration in that sense, I think about the idea of um, these emotions coming up, the pain, the confusion, the discomfort, and being able to sit with them and feel into them and gradually feeling them move and disintegrate and disperse. And sometimes it almost feels like it comes to the heart space or some or somewhere and sort of releases or or changes or moves on and the anger's gone and the attachment's gone for and um any response to what i've just i'm kind of rant not well do you want me to bring this back to raw veganism <laughs> well sure because i i mentioned drugs but i was going to mention is that the same with food like are people using because we hear about emotional detox, we hear about people go raw and all of a sudden all the emotions come up and they've been using food to numb themselves. And I don't know if that was ever my experience, but that, that's not to say it's not others' experience. But yeah, let's get into that topic of food. Yeah, well, first to, to comment on what, what you said, I totally agree. That, and I think that the um, it's not only an individual choice to not be able to sit and like process the pain, it's also... A systemic issue. Again, from the social work perspective, thinking about the systems that we have at play and the system in the Western world, particularly the systems are not in place. You know, like literally in my past job, I had one day of bereavement leave. So if anyone in my family died, I was supposed to get over that in one day. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yes, I could do my own stuff. I can make my own choices on the weekends, whatever. But that's just a classic example of how the system is not set up that way. You know what I mean? Yes. You know, you have a baby, you have, which is a huge change. You get two weeks off. I mean, what? You literally have just pushed a human out of your body. Like, 
clearly that is a pivotal change for a female. And when you, and for the male, if a male is involved, right. And we literally get two weeks to figure that out. So yes, it's an individual choice and individual learning how to cope and whatever. And then it's also a systemic problem that we're, we don't, we don't, we don't set up our society in a way to allow people space. Like the, the dramatic, the dramatic changes that I've had in my life, you know, I've literally had to make dramatic choices. For example, my, uh, Lee and I, when I left my job before we moved to Michigan, we left our jobs a month early and we went to Costa Rica and we did a water fast. And that was a, you know, everyone was like, you're crazy and blah, blah, blah. blah. And obviously we know we were in a very privileged position that we could save up our money, take that space before we moved. But in this world, when you choose to do something like that, like we're going to take a month we're going to do this really challenging thing for our personal, physical, and emotional growth. People think you're nuts instead of being like, wow, like, could we do this more? And then we wouldn't have opioid addictions. We wouldn't have, do you know what I'm saying? Um, so yeah. So for me, I have always been a very, um, sensitive soul. And so I, I always say that I was like, born into a pain bubble. So, I mean, I can never remember a time in my life when I was happy. Like when people talk about like having happy childhoods or whatever, like I was kind of like, just again, like talk what you're talking about. I think it's past life stuff and whatever. I was just like born from the medical model. You could say, you know, I had depression and all these things, but I, it's just, I was super sensitive. The world was super overwhelming to me. And so but I grew up in a super conservative um, environment. My dad was a bab is a Baptist minister, so you you're not really allowed any addictions except food, right? Like you're not you can't drink, <laughs> you can't smoke, you can't. Yeah. But sure, you can eat crap, and if you go to these churches, you'll see lots of obese people. You know, lots of so the two things that I turned to quite early in my life, it was um, food and. Um, like, um, overworking, like achievement. Okay. Yeah. So like, you know, being in it, like doing all the things, you know, athlete athletics, straight A's, like all these things, you know, those, that was kind of when I was younger and I didn't have the capacity to deal with my pain in the world that I lived in, those were acceptable ways for me to escape my pain. Right. Um, and yeah. And so I continued on in life and, you know, I had a lot of Thing, like diagnosable things, but looking back on it, it was all just kind of like, I didn't know how to deal with my pain. Um, and then, but I always had such compassion. I always wanted to change the world and, you know, solve poverty and all these big questions. Um, so when I found out about veganism, um, I was in my own, um, like, not good relationship. And I, as an adult, and I was really, I had a lot of somatic symptoms going on. I had adrenal fatigue. I had a bunch of things going on, but particularly I wanted to change my diet for my mental health because I was tired of being on psychotropic meds. So I had been put on meds. Um, and this is a whole nother discussion meds, right. And big pharma. Right. Um, but I had been put on meds when I was six years old. So I had been put on meds before I even had a choice. Okay. And, and looking back on that, you know, it, it can be quite sad, right? Because I don't, who knows how much that changed my brain chemistry. Um, but it wasn't a choice that I had. Right. I mean, it was just what the adults in my life decided at the time. So I had been on meds from six until 30. 
just different types. Like, cause nobody could ever figure it out. Like you're such a high achiever on the outside. You look like everything's fine, but you still want to kill yourself. So we'll just give you this med, you know? Um, and so, and I was just like, something has to change. So in one week, when I turned 30, I became a vegan. I, um, started training for an Ironman and I got divorced in one week, um, when I was 30 and it was a lot. And I had a lot, I mean, I wouldn't recommend doing everything that quickly. Oh, when I came off all my meds because the psychiatrist would not work with me. So, um, I had to figure it out myself. And again, this is just my story and I do not recommend that. Some meds are not, are sometimes necessary, right? I'm not like totally anti-med, but for me and my journey, I just felt like, how in the world am I going to figure out who I am? Who is my true self? I've literally had something like changing my brain chemistry since I was six years old, you know? So I just felt like in order to, for me to find myself, I had to like do something dramatic. So I detoxed. I mean, I really physically and mentally felt horrible. I did not have one of those stories where it was like, I turned vegan and immediately I felt great. No, because I think I just had so many chemicals in my body. Like my body just like had a lot to go through. So, I mean, I felt pretty bad for a year, but by this time I understood the ethics of veganism. So I think if I had just been doing it for my health, I would have been like, this isn't working. But by the time I became a vegan, I understood, you know, what it was doing for the environment, what it was doing for the animals. I understood that all these things that I cared about, poverty, social justice, that there was a connection, right? Um, And so I had made a commitment that regardless of whether this helps me physically, like I have to continue in it because now I'm committed like ethically and morally. Um, So I started off with raw veganism. I got super sick. Uh, because I went from eating meat like straight to a raw vegan and I didn't know how to do it. And at this time there was like no YouTubers, like there was like nothing. Right. So I was just like going to whole foods, trying to figure it out. Um, and so then I, I was really drawn to the raw vegan lifestyle, but I just really, I didn't, I hadn't learned about fruitarianism. So I did kind of the like gourmet raw style and I got really sick. Um, And then I kind of went back to just kind of like cooked vegan, a little bit of vegetarian and was kind of like just really trying to figure it out. Um, I moved to Guatemala. It was super hard to do in Guatemala. Um, And then I met my husband, Lee, and he had like just finished his health certification. And he was telling me about this. We met, we both met in a vegan group. So that was quite nice because we we already had the ethical, um, you know, things in common. And I was explaining to him, like, I've always wanted to be a raw vegan, but it just didn't work for me. And he's like, what do you mean it didn't work? (laughs) You know? (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, I got sick. Like I literally was throwing up. Like I couldn't keep any, like my microbiome was just shot. So he was like, well, like, did you have you tried fruitarianism? And I was like, no, I don't know what this is. So anyway, so he helped me, you know, transition, but, um, I, because I had like a lot of gut issues and whatever, every time I would go completely raw, I would get sick again. And so it wasn't. And so that's why one of the main reasons we decided to do the water fast to really just kind of reset the system. And it was finally after the water water fast that I was able to um, be raw and like not get sick. And 
what do you think about the concept of like the emotional detox idea like someone goes raw emotions come up and all that do you, do you think that's correct yeah i always say and this again this is just my story right but i i like don't resonate very much with like most of the raw vegans that i've met because for me being a raw vegan has made my life much more challenging um in the sense that like i told you like i'm super sensitive i'm super and for years i didn't have the capacity to hold that so i had to use these other things so when i finally got to the point where i had enough skills that i could um it's super painful like i i even now i so when i became a raw vegan my, I started, I can't tell, like my relationship as a therapist completely changed with my clients. I could feel their energy. I could feel their, um, like body heat. Like I, it just like, it was like, I'd been living, I was already sensitive with all these chemicals in my body. And when I took these chemicals out, it was like, I was just on full alert. And for me, for other people, I hear them describe it as like, I was a freaking superhero for me. It was quite painful, um, <laughs> because it's like, it was too much. Right. And I had to right. really figure out how do I, so for example, used to, cause I'm an extrovert used to, I could be in crowds like all day now, because I can feel energies very strongly. I can't be in crowds very long. Like I'll go with my son to like a museum and like after an hour or so, like I get nauseous because it's just like, it's a lot. Um, so yes, but the reason why I continue and why I keep working with this is because I believe that this has enabled me to be more of my true self, right? I believe I was put, I, I, would, I agreed to come to this earth to be a super sensitive being, to, to help with healing, to help people understand how to sit with this pain in this world. And I don't think I could, I was able to do that until I was, um, you know, physically clear. And then that opened up more, more of this spiritual and emotional journey, um, that I've been on that, um, yeah, can be quite painful. <laughs> Have you ever looked at the, some of the exercises, um, found being able to shut off as in, Oh, sure. There's a lot of people that are like people that have that psychic tendency or whatever, and they're picking up a lot from a lot of people. Yeah, I have to do the shielding techniques. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I have and I have my crystal and yeah, those are, I've had to really delve into all of that stuff. Um, um, yeah, and so it's it's I I'm so glad that I think that this path has led me closer to be who I need to be in the world, um, but it hasn't been without its you know challenges, and and it'll be interesting because our son, who's 15 months now, you know, he, I was raw vegan, my full pregnancy, he's been raw vegan his whole life. And it'll just be so interesting to like, see how that plays out for him. Right. Like, like if this theory is true, right. That I'm, that I'm proposing that for me, all those chemicals and all those things for all those years, like literally I couldn't even find myself until I got all that out of there. Well, what's it going to be like for him if he's never had all of that? Right. You know, potentially I'm hoping I can support him in getting to his true self quicker, right? Yeah. How how did um how how did your pregnancy go? Um, this is interesting. So again, I have watched there's not that many of them out there, but there's a few like raw vegan people pregnant that have like YouTube channels and stuff, right? Um, 
And a lot of them were like, oh my gosh, it felt amazing. It was great, blah, blah, blah. So when I got pregnant and I was super sick, I was like, what is going on like this? And so my husband like started researching. And what we found is those that had been raw vegan eight years or more when they got pregnant, awesome. Like their body seemed to like handle it super well. Those that were like um, six, seven or less. And when I got pregnant with Corbin, I had been raw vegan three years. So still early, right? Um, seem to have just as many issues, like not, I wouldn't say just as many issues as the regular person, because obviously I do think that this, it allowed my body to be able to do things I wouldn't have been able to do if I was still eating how I used to eat. But I think that if I had gotten pregnant, you know, 10 years from now, and I had been raw vegan for 15 years, I think potentially I would have had more of those benefits that some of those ladies talk about, right. Of like, they don't get any of the morning sickness or whatever, but I mean, I think it just depends on everybody's composition as well. But I will tell you this, uh, cause after the water fast. What, what, we, the barf itself, is the barf okay? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, nothing. So it's, I'm talking about like my feeling Right. Okay. I wasn't feeling great, but as far as like health wise, awesome. Right. Like I, I only gained 10 pounds, which was healthy. Um, Corbin was beautiful. Seven, six. I had a natural home birth, like oh, wow. physically yeah. and I, and no doubt the raw vegan lifestyle supported me in that. Right. Did you take B12 or supplements? Yes. I took B12 and I also took, uh, vitamin D cause we live in freaking Michigan <laughs> and I took, you know, the prenatal and then I took, cause I couldn't get enough omega. Um, what's the one, the one that's in it's omega three, right? The one that's harder to get like the omega six is the one that's in like the avocado and the, but the omega three is the one that's harder to get. Um, yeah, that's a good question because I, I seem to see that omega-6 is kind of hard to get, but I, I think that I personally don't worry too much about the black. I mean, omega-3 is like a tiny amount of flaxseed gives you your daily requirement of it if, if people are worried about that. But um, Yeah, so I had, do you know? Um, I'm confused about that. I'm, I'm not an expert on that point. What's but her name? She's the doctor, Dr. Toomey. Right, Jimmy Johnson. Yeah. yeah, she did. So I watched, I, she helped me a lot because um, uh -huh. you know, she had a healthy raw vegan pregnancy. So I watched, she had a few things that she would, she recommended. So she, she was helpful her and, um, but I ended up after the water fast, uh, because when I went into the water fast, so this is something that I think is super important for anyone that is new to a raw vegan lifestyle. Um, and they're a female that wants to have like a childbearing age. Um, for me, and again, this could just be me, but I don't think it is. I think like for Lee, he can literally be fine with like no fat. Like he actually does better if he like keeps his fat super low. But for me, the 10%, like um, it wasn't working for me. Like I wasn't, um, I had irregular periods. I wasn't like at my maximum fertility when we were trying to like get pregnant. So I had to increase that and I've kept it, um, at like 15, between 15 and 20%, like 
getting pregnant through the pregnancy and breastfeeding. And I, I feel, I feel like that has been much better for me. I think after I'm done breastfeeding and I'm not trying to get pregnant, I think I can go back down, but it seems for my body. And I don't, I'm sure for other women too, like during this time, we need a little bit more, like obviously calories. Um, and in my particular case, um, yeah. it wasn't until I increased my fat that I was more regular with my cycle. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm understood. Okay. Yeah, cool. So, um, we've had a long discussion, Abby, and I would, there's so much more to talk to you about. I think I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I didn't expect it to go in the way it did. I, I didn't. Can I tell you one more thing? Just wrap yeah, of this course, up. of course. I'm, I'm not, I'm not necessarily wrapping up straight away, but I'm just saying, I just wanted to uh, mention that. But yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, I, so my particular research is I am trying to bring in because we have a lot of research on um, the just the, the straight up physical benefits of veganism a plant-based diet, right? Like, you know, it can reverse diabetes and, you know, all the things that we know from yeah. nutritional science. But what I am looking at with my research is the spiritual and energetic side, because um, we know that oppressions, uh, there's a framework called total liberation, the total liberation framework. And basically it's, it's talking about interlocking oppressions that, you know, if we have patriarchy, there's speciesism, there's capitalism, there's ableism, there's all, all these things are like rooted in this like othering mentality. And so, um, putting all of that together and using like theories from ecophysics feminism and vegan feminism, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to look at four women who are exiting these domestic violence relationships. If they're still eating, potentially, if they're still, and we don't have any research on this, this is why this is what my dissertation is on. If they're still eating oppressive materials, right, from animal agriculture and all of that, could that be holding them back from some of the, some of the holistic healing and like opening up of trauma and all of that. And so what I'm doing is I'm interviewing vegan survivors of intimate partner violence to really look at what were the holistic mind, body, spirit benefits of a vegan diet and not, not obviously I'm sure there will be some of the things that we already know, like, you know, feeling better and all of that, but I'm really looking at this like energetic perspective of like breaking free from oppression and, um, and how in, you know, not ingesting those materials potentially could have the benefit of helping people heal, um, heal quicker or in a, in a different type of way, because I want to eventually be able to support adding a plant-based diet to some of these interventions we're already doing. And right now there's not enough research that that could get funded. So that I wanted to kind of explain that um, kind of multiple oppressions perspective um, because I don't think that there's, this just applies to survivors of partner violence. You know, all of us um, back to like the topic of your podcast, right? When we choose veganism, um, I do think it affects us on a spiritual and uh, mental level. Whereas a lot of times you just hear people talking about the physical level, but I think there's all these other levels that are happening. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that 
I've heard people talk about, say, with the, the raw food lifestyle and, and some people almost act like it's kind of seems sounds like similar to what you're saying, like always is too much for them or there's, um, it brings a, a lot of emotion, a lot of energy and things like that. And I, and, and all of a sudden when they get rid of certain foods that were numbing them, all these emotions. And I think there's, sometimes I think there's some confusing things going on here because Personally, I don't remember not feeling emotions when I was eating uh, a bad diet. I remember feeling emotions throughout my whole life and intensely. And maybe I didn't use food in that way, but I, I, I never remember food being able to do that or, or get rid of emotions in it. So maybe I'm different to other people, but I, I didn't experience that. Um, but there is something that I think that I think people confuse i just want to add this piece in which is when people often go on a raw vegan diet or a detox diet a cleanse diet a typical part of that and a mistake that people make is not eating enough now that's not eating enough is okay if a person understands what's going on and knows what they're doing and understands what can come of that but if they don't realize that they're not eating enough or they don't understand what happens if you don't eat enough, um, they will not be aware that symptoms of undereating include anxiety, irritability, yep. and depression. Yep, yep. Also can lead to struggling to sleep. And all of that adds together into a very unstable emotional state for someone that's already struggling with that. Yep, yep who's really strong emotionally that's they can maybe get through it for someone that's already struggling with that that's going to feel very very difficult for them and i've seen people say this is oh this is my traumas coming up but i'm kind of like i think that what you're experiencing is that the anxiety from the fact that you're not consuming enough food at this time now i think that um no, that's not always the case. I'm not. I'm not saying that. But certainly, when people are talking about detox diets, cleanses, um, and generally people who don't who lack the experience and don't don't realize, and the way the way to realize if that's what it is is literally to go and have healthy food, not junk food, but go and eat some bananas, some fruit, some something simple. And if it goes away, then there's a good chance that that's all it was. It was just the anxiety uh, was coming up. And for some people, that'll be stronger than others, I suppose. I want to add that piece in because I think there's some people that will feel that and they will say, this is me going through emotional detox. detox. And then they'll want to keep on getting that experience again and try and go back to that because they think there's more in there. And, and that's not really a healthy way for someone to try and deal with those situations. I imagine, but what's your sort of feedback from what I've just said? Yeah, it's a big, it's a big shift. I mean, you know, and, and obviously in my future, because right now I see clients, but I see them through, I still work for an agency because I don't have time with getting my PhD to start my private practice. But eventually, I, I mean, I think there is definitely a need to support people, um, like with therapy, right? When they're going through this, right? To help them sort through if they're making these big transitions, like what is actually because they're not eating enough and what is like actually, yes, there is trauma coming up because I think it can be super tricky. And, you know, by the time I made the transition, 
I, I had been a therapist for a long time and I had a lot of skills, but had I not had those skills, I don't think I would have been able to stick with it. And I think a lot of people find themselves in that position, right? They just don't have that. They don't have the capacity to, or the resources to know how to, how to deal with that. Um, And I definitely experienced not eating enough. I mean, it's just such a big transition when you go from food, even if you're a cooked vegan, I mean, the quantity that you have to eat um, is dramatically different, especially if you're an active person, because I, I mean, I've always been an athlete. And so, um, you know, that requires eating a lot. Yes. Um, and well, I'd be like, for you. Yeah. I, I mean, how do people find out about you or contact you or find out more about you? Is there anywhere they can follow you or contact you? Well, and that's, that's the thing, like I told you, because of my time and like having a young child and being in a PhD program, I have not like put my website together or anything, but I do just, you can just email me. Um, um, and so do you want me to just link you'll link that in the yeah we'll put a link below with the but but um i guess right now the best way to email me would be my school email because especially if anybody you know is a survivor that um is vegan and you know has more things to say about that but even if you don't and you just have anything anything of interest yes my email is n-e-l- so777 at msu.edu. Excellent. Well, well, we'll put that below as well. And thank you very much, Abby. It was a fascinating conversation. And I, I love this topic. I'm really interested in these things and exploring that. And I think there's a there's definitely a big missing piece to the puzzle of the of, of life, of human life, of explaining to people and people understanding what these experiences are. And how to go through I don't think anyone really ever gets prepared for like you know things can happen in your life that will create unbelievable traumatic emotional situations that can that if you are not able to to process them will affect you and your choices and everything for the rest of your life and and you need to be prepared for how to deal with those situations and I just don't think there's a there's enough out there to educate people and prepare them for that and and maybe as well we lack the kind of guidance and community and places that that can offer that kind of support that people need um one last thing do you think there's any ever a time where people are actually have good intentions to try and help someone and actually end up like like preventing the person making progress in a way Uh, yeah for sure i i've had so many people over the years come to me and you know i always ask them like have you seen a therapist before you know because i want to know kind of like what their past experiences has been like so that like i know what works for them and what doesn't work for them and i've had so many people over the years be like well yeah and it was awful and that's why i haven't been to therapy in 20 years you know, and again, not that therapy is the only way to seek healing. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think that's just one example of how, you know, that's a lot of power, right? That they had this experience w- with this, you know, healing professional or whatever. Um, and then it didn't go well. And then that, that clouded kind of their, their, their journey forward, you know? Um, and so I don't think that just happens in the therapy world. You know, I think that happens in the um, 
in the church and the spiritual world and the energy world, all of that. So, yeah, I mean, if you, especially if you are trying to be a healer in some way, it's, I mean, it's a lot of, it's a big, um, responsibility, right. You know, yeah. um, to take lightly. And that's, that's, and the only thing, cause I know that I'm not going to do everything that someone else is going to like. And that's why I just always try to tell my clients, like, let me, please let me know immediately if there's anything that, um, makes you feel uncomfortable or anything like that sure. you know so we can talk through it well thank you very much abby and yeah let everyone know that uh, thank you for watching and listening please like and share and subscribe to our channels if you're watching us on youtube or subscribe to the podcast if you're listening to us on itunes or spotify or whatever and we we like you we we really thank you for your support Feel free to send us any feedback, info at fruitfest.co.uk. And you can also check out the UK Fruit Fest, which is a raw vegan festival in the UK at fruitfest.co.uk. You can join our mailing list there and you can get access to some free online events and so on. Thank you, Abby. And thanks everyone for watching and listening. And we'll see you in another episode of the Love Fruit Podcast.